0: If you are here and it feels a little dark, it is not mood lighting. It is because something like 15 of these bulbs are burnt out. um, And you can imagine it's rather difficult to change them. So somebody's uh, kind enough to loan us a lift. And they're going to bring it in this week. And we're going to get up and change some of those bulbs. And what we are asking from you is if you have like 10 minutes after the service to hang out and help us clear the chairs... That'd be really helpful, um, and then we'll be able to, to, to change all those bulbs. Uh, by the way, my name's Andy. Thank you for worshiping us today. Uh, hope you got a cookie or a donut on the way in. That's your sugar reward for coming to church on a rainy holiday weekend. And uh, We're glad that you're here. Before we go into the sermon, I've got a couple of other quick announcements. Next week is Gospel Community Week. We are starting those. Gospel communities are medium-sized groups of about 20 to 30 people or so. They will meet once a month, primarily for the purpose of sharing a meal together like the first Christians did. And praying with one another, uh, sharing our faith stories, doing life uh, uh, together. And that's the purpose of gospel communities. If you haven't signed up for one yet, you can. Go to our website, lakeviewfree.org. Under the connect uh, menu is a, a link for gospel communities, and you can find the sign up for those. Uh, there also on the website in that connect menu there's another link for Bible studies so we have a couple of Bible studies that are starting this fall if you're interested in joining a Bible study class um, please go there and you can sign up and see what the options are Um, I think that's all the announcements I have let's jump into the sermon this week we're going to end a four-week long series called half-brained christianity and the, the idea behind the series is that in order to grow in Christ or to have character formation happen, we need to engage both halves of our brain, the left side and the right side. And our brains are created to, in different, way, uh, different ways. The, the left side does some things, the right side does other things. To summarize it, the way Mike Mall did a couple of weeks ago, the left side of the brain basically functions with what do I know, and the right side of the brain manages who I am. So the left side is information, the right side is identity. Uh, And in order to grow into the character of Christ, it's not enough just to focus on information, which is a lot of times what we do as Christians. We say, well, I want to become more like Jesus. Let's do a Bible study. Let's listen to a sermon. Let's memorize scripture. Let's read a book. Let's do these things that focus on the left side of our brain. But in order to become like Christ, we really need to engage our full brains. We need the information, but we also need identity and relationships and connection and emotions. And that's what we've been talking about the last four weeks. So we've, we've talked about things like joy. God created our brains to run on joy the way a car engine runs on gas. There's no gas in the car, the engine's not going to run. If there's no joy in our brains, our character is not going to grow. So we need joy, and joy comes primarily through face-to-face interaction with other people and face-to-face interaction with God. It's why we come and worship him together. It's why we're doing things like gospel communities where we sit in a circle and eat together and look at one another in the face and talk about life because that's building joy. Uh, As we grow in joy with other people, we also need hesed, which is the Old Testament word for loving attachment. We need faithful, loyal, loving relationships with other believers so that we can begin not just to study what it means to be a Christian, but to watch each other live it out. I don't just need to learn information about not lying, I actually need to watch people tell the truth in difficult circumstances. And as I am watching that, my brain begins to grow and my character begins to develop. And as we are filling filling each other with joy, as we are developing loving attachment to one another, we also begin to form a group identity. Uh, Last week, I said one of the most important questions you can ask yourself as you're following Jesus is, who are my people? Because six times every second, before we're even aware that it's happening, six times every second, the right side of our brain is analyzing our environment and saying, who am I in this context? And the way the right side of the brain answers that question is it says, what do my kind of people do in this circumstance? And then that's what I should do because this is the kind of person that I am. So as we begin to develop a group identity, the, the examples that our right brain pulls from are the group identity, the examples of people doing what Jesus would do. And that begins to form and shape our character. So we talked about joy, hesed, loving attachment, and group identity. And the thing that I want to really wrestle with now as we come to the close of the series is what if I'm doing all those things and sometimes they're not working? <laughs> Right, Because I don't know if you relate to this. This is my experience. I'm guessing some of you share it. Um, There are times when I am doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm building joy with other believers. Uh, I'm developing real loving relationships with them. I have a strong sense of who are my people. It's my church family. Uh, And I'm doing all these things. And I'm going to church. And I'm reading the Bible. And I'm engaging in the activities. And yet there are still times in my life when my attitudes and my actions do not match my new identity in Christ. I don't know if you guys experience that or not, but that's my, that's my struggle. There are times when, when my heart is not aligned with my new values in Jesus. And so what do I do then? What do I need then? When we wander or forget who we are or turn back into sin or have a moment where we react in an unchrist like way. What we need is correction. The Bible calls this rebuke. And rebuke is kind of a harsh word in our culture today. We're not very comfortable with this whole idea of correction or rebuke because we tend to err on one of two sides of a spectrum. Either we land on the side that says, I am conflict avoidant. I don't like conflict. I don't like correcting others. Uh, It's uncomfortable. I don't want them to be mad. I don't want to make a really awkward situation. So I'm going to avoid offering correction as much as I possibly can. I will do everything in my power to get away from it. Or we end up on the side that, uh, that says, I'm going to give correction, but I'm going to give it in the wrong way. I love nitpicking everybody's lives. I love telling other people all the things that they could be doing better. All the things. I love getting into their business or or I lash out in anger or I attack the person instead of the problem or all these things. So we tend to either avoid giving correction altogether or we give correction in the wrong way, an unhealthy way. Proverbs 15:31 says, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Look at those words, life-giving. There's a kind of correction that is life-giving, and there's a kind of correction that is death-dealing, life-taking. And it's important that we give life-giving correction because if we don't give any correction at all, then there's no growth. No correction, no growth. Think of a coach uh, coaching athletes. You know, you got to put your feet the right way. You've got to hold the bat the right way. Bend your knees the right way. Have your back at the right angle. Have your elbow up the right way. Swing the bat the right way. Do all this the right way. And as you're coaching, when the athlete doesn't get it quite right, their feet are wrong, they're not holding the bat right, the coach corrects them. Because if the coach doesn't correct it, there's no improvement. Right? Think about parents helping their kids study for a test. I read the question, my kid gives the answer. It's the wrong answer. Well, I don't really want to hurt his feelings. I don't want him to be mad at me. I don't want to introduce conflict into our relationship, so I'll just pretend that he gave the right answer. No parent does that. Why? Because their kid fails the test. No correction is no growth. And those are easy, clear examples. What about speaking to a brother in Christ about his selfish attitude? That's harder but if we don't correct it, it won't improve. So we need to give correction, but it needs to be life-giving correction because unhealthy correction leads to a host of problems. Toxic shame, uh, rebellion, condemnation, despair, resentment, anger, bitterness, rejection of the truth, rejection of God, uh, broken relationships. Correcting people in unhealthy ways does not fix the problem. In fact, usually it makes it worse. So life-giving correction is important. Life-giving correction can lead to conviction of the sin, confession, uh, repentance, spiritual growth, and character development. We need to give correction. It needs to be life-giving correction. And the question that I want us to ask today as we bring this series to a close is what makes correction life-giving instead of life-taking? What makes a rebuke healthy instead of demoralizing? That's the question. So uh, I have a, a few uh, things to, to highlight for you uh, t- this morning, and the first one is this: life-giving correction is offered with humility. A healthy rebuke is shared with meekness, right? Proverbs 15:31. Going back to that verse, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. In those verses that I just read, are they speaking to the person who is giving correction or to the person who is receiving correction? You can go back a couple verses, uh, Glenn, if you want, so they can see. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Is that written to the person who is giving the correction or the person who is receiving the correction? You can, it's okay if you shout out the answer. Receiving. The important thing to learn from the, the principle that I want to pull out from this is before we give correction, we have to be willing to receive it. We have to be humble enough to accept it. Uh, that's where life-giving correction begins, not with me correcting you, but with me being willing to receive correction. If you're not humble enough to be rebuked, you have no business rebuking anyone else. That's the, me- the, the lesson that we're learning. Life-giving correction begins with humility. Every week, uh, or every day this summer, I've been listening to the Daily Audio Bible podcast uh, during my quiet time, And uh, this week, this past week, one of the verses they read was Proverbs 22.10, which says, "'Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease.'" And sometimes the, the reader, uh, the Daily Auto Bible reader, Brian Harden, sometimes he offers a little devotional thought or something the Lord stirred in his heart as he was reading the scripture. And he said, uh, uh, particularly about this one, he said, most of the time we read that verse and the first question we ask is, who are the scoffers that I can drive out of my life? Because I don't like strife, I don't like quarreling. So I need to get rid of the people in my life who are scoffers. And he said, but what if that's not the right question? What if the right question is, what if I'm the scoffer? What if driving out a scoffer doesn't mean running, uh, running people away from me, but what if it means driving out the scoffer that's in my own heart? What if I have the scoffer living inside of my head and I need to drive that scoffer out of my own life first? See, we need to apply the Bible to our lives before we apply it to others. We need to examine our own hearts before we pick apart the hearts of others. Life-giving correction begins with humility. Dave Wilson uh, recently shared some wisdom for how to examine your own heart. Uh, And these are some questions, wisdom from Dave. Uh, Before you give correction to somebody, ask these questions. Is this the right thing to say? Or do I need to let it go? Is this the right time to say it? Are they in a place where they can hear it, right? Uh, Is this the right way to say it? Because if I scream it in their face, they're probably not going to respond well, right? Am I the right person to say it? Maybe not. Do I have the right reason for saying it? Uh, What's my motive? If my motive is to show how right I am, that's the wrong motive. If my reason is to make them feel bad about themselves, that's not the right reason. If my reason is to help them grow in Christ and become a better person, then I have the right reason. But I still have to ask the other questions. And before I offer correction, I need to make sure that it's offered from a place of humility. Number two, life-giving correction is offered with unconditional love. A healthy rebuke is shared with love that has no contingencies. Our love for someone else should never be contingent on whether or not they act the way we think they should. Because if I begin to withhold my love from you until you behave the way I think you should, my correction is never going to be life-giving. It is only going to be life-taking. And aren't we glad that God doesn't love us that way? Well, I'm not gonna love you until you clean yourself up and get your head screwed on straight. Then I will give you my love. No, that's not what Jesus did for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Um, We need to love someone unconditionally and we need to have a strong, love-filled relationship with them before we can bring correction into their lives. A lot of conflict happens when I try to speak into somebody's life before I've earned the right to. They need to know that I love them, that our relationship is not at risk, and that, that, that there's, they trust me before I can speak correction into their life. It has to come from a place of unconditional love. The most beautiful picture of unconditional love, I think, in the history of the world is the prodigal son story from Luke chapter 15. Uh, this young man comes to his father and says, I want, my inheritance now I don't want to wait until you're dead I want it now and and then I'm going to go live my own life so the dad heartbroken gives his son the inheritance his son runs off and begins to party it away blows his money on on fun and wine and women and on just all the wrong things and he and then he runs out of money And all of his friends that hung out with him when he was the king of the party have left him. And he ends up, the only job he can find is feeding pigs. And he ends up living in the pigsty with the pigs and he doesn't even have enough money to buy his own food so he's eating food from the pig slop. And he kind of comes to his senses and he says, you know what, Even, even the servants in my dad's house are better off than me. Maybe I should go home, but I'm not worthy to be his son. I rejected him. So maybe I'll just go home and apply for a job as a farmhand because even my dad's workers have a better life than me right now. So he goes home, and what he doesn't know is that every day since, his left, since he left, his dad has been standing at the front of his house looking down the road waiting for his son to come home. And as soon as his dad sees the son in the distance, the dad gets up and he sprints to his son and he embraces him and he says, you're home, my son, my son has come home. And he brings him in and he throws a big party because he's overjoyed that his son has returned. His son who rejected him, his son who squandered all of his wealth, his son who wasted it on all the wrong things. And yet the dad loves his son unconditionally. Uh, uh, several years ago, I guess maybe a long time ago, uh, there was a Christian music group called Phillips, Craig, and Dean, and they wrote this song called When God Ran. And I want to share a little bit of it with you. It's, It's based on the story of the prodigal son. It goes like this. Almighty God, the great I am, immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror, and the only time The only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, and said, my son's come home again. Lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. After I left home, I knew I'd broken his heart. I wondered then if things would ever be the same. But one night I remembered his love for me, and down that dusty road ahead I could see. It's the only time, the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me, took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, and said, My sons, come home again. Lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. Life-giving correction has to come from a place of unconditional love. Number two, sorry, number three, life-giving correction is offered without judgment. It's given with humility, it's given with unconditional love, and it's given without judgment. A healthy rebuke is shared without judging the other person's heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 Verses 9 and 10 say this, The the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Life-giving correction comes without judgment because I cannot judge your heart. Why? Because your heart is deceitfully wicked And nobody understands it except God. And guess what? So is mine. I don't even understand the depths of my own depravity. I can't even judge my own heart, let alone yours. Only God can judge the heart. And and when I give life-giving corrections, I cannot judge your heart. I cannot judge your motives. I can only observe your actions. And I can say whether an action was good or bad, but I cannot judge you. That's God's job, not mine. New Testament scholar Dr. Scott McKnight says it this way, Christians can pronounce that is good and that is wrong, but not you are condemned by God. We don't have that authority. Jesus' teaching shapes his people into a society for reconciliation instead of damnation, right? Life-giving correction is, is without judgment. When I do uh, marriage counseling or premarital counseling, I often talk to a couple about the difference between making judgments and making observations. And a lot of conflict in a relationship uh, can be avoided uh, if we will make observations instead of judgments. So here's an example. A judgment statement might be this. You don't love me and you don't respect me enough to help me keep the house clean. I'm judging your character. I'm judging your heart. I'm judging your motives. You don't love me. You don't respect me enough to keep the house clean. The same source of conflict handled from an observation statement might be like this. Hey, when I get in the shower every day, I notice that your dirty underwear are on the floor behind the bathroom door. And when I see that, it makes me feel like you don't care about our house. It makes me feel disrespected. So, it would really mean a lot to me if you'd put your dirty underwear in the hamper. Now, I don't know why Corinne can't put the hamper behind the bathroom door. (laughs) But still, you know, different way of addressing the same issue. One is accusational. You don't love me. You don't respect me. The other is I am observing a behavior that I would like to correct, and it would mean a lot to me if you would correct it. Totally different way of approaching it. Life giving correction is offered with unconditional love and without judgment. Life giving correction, lastly, is offered without condemnation. A healthy rebuke is shared without toxic shame. Romans chapter 8. If you memorize scripture, and I recommend that you do uh, Romans 8, 1 and 2 are verses that you should memorize, file them away in your memory bank. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you belong to Jesus, there is no condemnation. There's no toxic shame, none of that, because the Holy Spirit has set you free from sin and death through Christ. There is no condemnation. So when we are giving life-giving correction, we need to avoid condemning statements like these. How could you do that? I'm so disgusted with you. You embarrass me. I can't believe you would be that stupid. We need to avoid those kind of hate-filled, demoralizing comments that are condemnation. And instead, we need to make life-giving statements that affirm the value of the person even while calling out the incorrect behavior. We need to make life-giving statements like these. Hey, remember who you are. You are a child of God now. Hey, that behavior, that's not who you are anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. Hey, you don't need to go back to that old way of living, that old pattern You're better than that. Listen, I love you. And more importantly, so does God. And God has something so much better for you than this. Right? Statements that affirm the worth and value and dignity of the person that we're correcting while not okaying the behavior that needs to be corrected. We need to avoid the condemning statements, we need to make life-giving statements, and then we need to remind them of whatever the correct attitude or action is. It's not just enough to tell somebody that they did something wrong and then walk away. We need to tell them and remind them of the right way to do it. We need to make statements like these. We're not the kind of people who demoralize others. We're a family that speaks the truth in love. Or, or we're not people who cover up our mistakes. We're people who are honest about our sin and confess our sin to one another. We're not self-centered people. We're a church that considers the needs of others as more important than our own. Remember that. We're not the kind of people who constantly complain and criticize now, we're a church family that is thankful, supportive, and encouraging to one another. Right? We need to affirm their worth and value as a human being and then remind them of who we are in Christ and what that means. Life-giving correction is offered with humility, with unconditional love, without judgment, and without condemnation. I want to wrap up this message and this series uh, by shifting gears just a little bit. I felt like the Lord specifically wanted me to go in this direction. I'm going to have Angie come and play softly on the piano while we reflect a little bit. Uh, We've been talking about offering correction to each other and healthy relationships with one another for the last few weeks. Now I want to ask, where are you at with God? As we close this message, as we close this series, where are you at with God? And probably uh, we all fall into one of several different categories. You might be here this morning, and you might be someone who needs to accept God's unconditional love. Maybe you're feeling dirty. Maybe you're feeling defiled. Maybe you're feeling disgusting. Maybe you have messed up, walked away, made some mistakes, And you're not sure if God still loves you. No matter how many steps away from Christ you have taken, it's only one step back. And this morning you might be here and you might need to remember God's unconditional love. And so I want you all to close your eyes and and let's walk through this meditation exercise. I want you to picture in your imagination God the Father sitting on the front porch looking down the road. Whatever that looks like in your mind's eye, just imagine that. And he's looking for you. And when he sees you come around the corner, I want you to picture in your mind's eye God jumping up and sprinting as fast as he can to you and wrapping you up in the biggest bear hug that you've ever had in your life and saying to you, son, do you know I still love you? Daughter, do you know I still love you? And allow the feeling of that unconditional love to wash over your soul. Some of us here fall into the category of needing God's unconditional love. Some of you might fall into another category, a category that, uh, that where you need to humble yourself. You need to say, yes, admit, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I have acted selfishly. Yes, I did gossip the other day. Yes, I have slandered somebody. Yes, I have driven a wedge of division in my family or in my school or in my workplace or in my church. Yes, I have been part of the problem and I need to humble myself and put down my pride so that I can acknowledge that I'm not as good as I thought I was. And some of us need to do that this morning. Remembering that God loves us unconditionally. We need to lay that pride at his feet and confess our sin. There's a third category. Some of, some of you might be in a good relationship with God right now, a good place with God right now, but you're in conflict with someone else. And you need to extend forgiveness or ask forgiveness, or both. And so what I want you to do, if if that's where you're at this morning, is I want you to take a moment and just bring that person's face to your mind. Just visualize their face right in front of you. And as you're looking at that person and you're feeling those feelings of anger and and tension and resentment, I want you to physically open your hands and let go of all of that. And let Jesus take it. If you need to forgive that person, I want you to decide to forgive them right now and put them into the hands of Christ. I need you to say, Lord Jesus, I choose to forgive them. And if you need to ask forgiveness, you might need to make a phone call after church today. And I want you to do that. There's a fourth category that some of us may fall into and that is the category of struggling with lies of condemnation. The enemy has, uh, has them on repeat in your head. You're gross. You're a sinner. You're disgusting. God could never love you now. No surprise, you messed up again. And you need to allow the truth of God's word to overcome the toxic shame and the lies of the enemy. And so I want to read from you for you a few selections from Romans chapter 8. And with your eyes closed, just allow these words to wash your soul clean and to purify your mind from the con- condemnation and the lies. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. I want to read that again. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Lord, I do not even have the power to condemn myself. Because you have justified. And I can't even bring a charge against myself and neither can anyone else. Going on in Romans 8, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, I am thankful that you inspired those words to be written in the book of Romans so that 2,000 years later, they could bring hope to our souls and silence the lies of the enemy. No one can bring any condemnation against those who belong to Christ. Not another person, not an unclean spirit whispering lies in our thoughts, not even my own self. And Lord, I pray that you would set us free from sin and death, from toxic shame, and from condemnation. As we go forth today, would you speak to our hearts? Would you show us who we can reconcile with if we're in a conflict with somebody, how to go about that in a healthy, life-giving way? And would you bring us ever closer to the heart of a father who still loves us no matter what. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.